From WXCI 91.7 Danbury, this is The Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Hi, I'm Matt Caputo, and this is the first episode of The Public Reading Club on WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, Connecticut. What can I say? I wanted to start a show where we talk about books, writing, reading, and book people, essentially. Uh, Twice monthly, we're going to do this show where I invite an author of a new book or a book I happen to really like onto the show, and hopefully we'll have uh, some members of our Westcon MFA writing community on the show to share some of their experiences. But I I love reading. Um, I'm a fan of almost every genre of book, and I find myself reading different things all the time. So it really was a no-brainer once I got involved down here at WXCI uh, to kind of blend my passion for reading, radio, and uh, essentially talking to people who write books and and work on stories. And uh, that's what I've always been uh, about myself as a writer and uh, as an MFA student here at WestCon. So I decided that I was going to reach out to people who I really admired, um, journalists, um, people who've written novels and other things, and uh, it was really cool that my first guest today will be Paul Cantor, who was the author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller, uh, the rapper who died uh, in 2018. Uh, It's a really interesting book that really captures the spirit of hip-hop and uh it's so well reported that it reminded me of what really good work looks like in uh in print and and in a book form uh it's a really top-notch uh biography of uh a very interesting person i i wasn't really a, a fan of mac miller i didn't know his music i had no opinion on him but as I read this book, I found them to be a very, um, very interesting subject to tackle. Uh, he was grew up in Pittsburgh. He was uh, kind of clumped in there with the white rappers uh, of his time and probably before his time too. But uh, Paul Cantor just does a fantastic job uh, breaking down the life of Mac Miller. And uh, he's who we're going to talk to today. After our interview, I'm going to spend just a little time recommending one of my favorite books. And hopefully this is how this will work moving forward. Um, I'm going to recommend a book that's one of my favorites that I actually recommended to somebody in real life last week. Just last week. And you'll, you'll learn more about the book at the bottom of our show. But... Uh, I hope that you, the audience, will find us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we're the Public Reading Club uh, on Instagram, at Public Reading Club. And we're also our name is the Public Reading Club on Facebook. You'll see our logo, which was made by a uh, really prolific Danbury uh, resident artist and designer, uh, Dom Alessandro, who we're very grateful to. But just to make this a little more fun, I'm going to give away a copy of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller 
by Paul Cantor, which is out now in paperback by Abrams Press. Uh, I'm going to give away a couple of free copies of the book to anybody who sends me a book recommendation. So we have a couple of copies here uh, with your name on it. We have a hardcover, and we have a paperback edition of the book. So uh, do, do us that favor. Send us a DM on Facebook or Instagram and... Give us a hundred-word book recommendation. I'll look up the book, and I'll read your recommendation at the end of every show. Um, I hope that anybody who hears this uh, really just to, if you want an author that you know or if you are an author and you want to talk about your book, get in touch, and uh, we can have a conversation, especially if you want to come to the WXCI studios here uh, in beautiful downtown Danbury. Um, so... I really hope you enjoy uh, the first episode of uh, Public Reading Club, and I hope you do enjoy uh, the interview with Paul enough that you go get his book. So thanks so much for your time. We'll talk again one-on-one at the end of the show. But for now, enjoy this interview with myself and Paul Cantor, author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. This is the first episode of the Public Reading Club on WXEI 91.7 here in Danbury, Connecticut. My guest is really talented writer, Paul Cantor. He is the author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. It's now available on paperback from Abrams Books. Paul, it's great to see you in person again. Uh, Thanks for making the drive up here to WXEI. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be your first guest. Um, You're a writer who I have uh, tremendous respect for, uh, dating back to when we first met more than 15 years ago, uh, and you know, always, uh, you know, appreciated your your work. And uh, like, I'm so honored that you decided to ask me to, you know, come up here and be interviewed. Yeah. It, it was easy uh it was easy to make that decision, Paul. You're a fantastic writer and uh recently the book came back out on paperback. It was January 24th, I think. Uh so it just really was a no-brainer on my end. What what have you been up to since the book was re-released? Has there been another round of press or anything or what have you been up to? Uh not much, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I I wish I could say that there was like a a rush of you know like renewed interest, and there kind of was, but like in terms of uh, redoing press and things like that, um, it wasn't like it wasn't like you know there was that much to do. I actually sometimes described the process of doing this book like having an alien life form inside of me right and it was inside of me for like (laughs) three or four years and then after the book came out I could slowly feel the alien life form leaving me Um, it wasn't until around the summer that the the alien was like kind of out of me and I could start to like really begin thinking about other things Um, so the paperback coming out like it was it was amazing um and it was kind of new for me because it's like my first book and there is a little bit of like a process to these things i have some friends who've done multiple books and they you know i don't know i i'm just like not affected by any of this even when the book came out i kind of was just like oh okay like like the book is out like that's cool you know um 
I, I don't know. I just have a different, um, you know, after you have a kid, like everything is like kind of um, small potatoes. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, wow, like just doesn't really, uh, you know, hold a candle to like welcoming life. So even though this was, uh, you know, a, a, a thing that I brought into the world, um, it's I still like, you know, I'm, I don't know. I just have like mixed views on on all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well, listen. I mean, that's probably not a tidy or politically correct answer, but <laughs> uh, this is not a totally politically correct show. <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta just be honest. Wide open. I gotta uh, just be honest about how how it feels. Yeah. <laughs> so, Paul, just to bring our listeners up to speed, um, Paul's book is about Mac Miller, the uh, rapper who died in September of. 2018 at 26 years old he was uh kind of like a bolt of lightning i guess you'd say he had a he had a very quick rise to prominence and uh, celebrity and very kind of uh troublesome decline and 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 fate ultimately did why don't you bring uh, our listeners up to speed on who mac miller was in your own words well I mean, first and foremost, I think he was uh, a really dynamic and interesting musician um, who lived a pretty passionate life. Uh, he, he was a guy who, you know, put his heart into what he was doing, um, kind of really bled for uh, what he created. And that was a an aspect of his life um, and in his career that uh, I identified with a lot. Um he was a little more uh, self-destructive than, you know, uh, I probably have been, <laughs> you know, but uh, I could see, you know, in him, you know, certain like personality traits and, you know, characteristics um, like that. I just I was like a, a piece with, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um he got famous pretty quickly. Um, I was around for some of that, not personally, you know, like where I was in his circle, but knew people that were, that he was close with. Um, I talk in the book about, you know, being one of the earliest people to be sent some of his music for, you know, opinions on what I thought, um, as back then, you know, I was uh, considered a tastemaker, so to speak, working at, um, you know, different magazines and such. Uh, as you were as well. Speak yes, I was about to say we go back a very long way, Paul and I, to a to a world that no longer exists, the magazine industry. So we both kind of, uh, I guess, ascended from the college ranks, if you will, and we landed at Harris Publications, which was the publisher of a lot of uh, mainstream consumer magazines, kind of mainstream. Double XL Magazine, which was a big hip hop magazine, Slam Magazine. Uh, Paul was working, I believe, at Scratch Magazine, which was more geared towards DJs and producers uh, of, of hip-hop music. And I was working at King Magazine, which was uh, kind of the, uh, the urban maxim, if you will, of the day, if anybody knows what that means. But, um, and Paul was certainly this person in the office who knew all the best music. And he also was in touch with these people. And in the early parts of Most Dope, he mentions uh, Arthur Pitt from Rostrum Records. And I can very vividly remember Arthur coming in to the office with his shorts and his like uh, strap over backpack or what, uh, whatever it was, handing out 
CDs, mixtapes to Paul, who in the office was known as Gooch, mm. but uh, also to uh, Matt Barone and I'm sure uh, Daytuan Thomas and whoever else was in, involved uh, in the music side of things in those days. So you, you took me back to a, to a time and a place. Uh, why did you choose personally to pursue the, the book about Mac Miller? Well, that's a good question. Good question. Um, I think, I mean, I, there was a groundswell of uh, interest in him, right? And a journalist, right, is, you know, first and foremost, you're looking for a story, right? I mean, you need something to write about or else, you know, the pages would just be blank. Um, but I also felt like there was, when he passed away, um, a little bit of like a, almost like a false history that was being presented of, of, you know, his life. Um, I saw him kind of becoming a bit of a meme, which I think still exists. Right. Um, th he kind of got painted with the, like the tragic hero paintbrush. Um, I would see people online sharing the, um, tiny desk, uh, NPR concert, which has been viewed, I don't know, like a billion times or something like that now, uh, on YouTube. And this sort of like quote unquote sad Mac thing, you know, b became like the, vi the, the image of him partially, I think because of the way he passed away when in reality, I kind of remembered him being, uh, you know, a lot different than that, you know, uh, sort of high energy, very fun loving and um enthusiastic and ambitious and you know just like a tremendous force you know in the in the early days and then i no doubt there was a period where you know he had some personal struggles and kind of quieted down a little bit and his uh, disposition changed um but I actually felt you know just as a um listener that is, you know, what he, the art he was making was like quite fascinating and really dope, you know. And uh, to me, I don't really have like much of a, I don't have like that much of a personal like bias or favoritism for anyone or anything. I really just only like, you know, good or bad music, hit records or, you know, or it's not hit record, you know, like a pretty much... Um, I'm just like that, you know? So with him, I, there were periods of his career where I, I really liked what he was making. There were periods where I might have not been paying as much attention because the music wasn't grabbing me as much. But I actually felt his last album was like, it hit me like in the chest, you know? I remember hearing it and I was like, whoa, this is like really, you know, some of the better music I've heard recently. You know, uh, he is 26 making, you know, music that, you know, was connecting with me at the time. I was, I think, like 36 or 37, you know, so, it, you know, it was it was very mature and very adult and um, and and like dope, you know, and uh, there was a tragic element to it. But I just had a lot of questions. Right. And all good stories start with a question. So it's just like, what's going on here? You know, um I remember initially, 
my friend, a friend of mine uh, texted me. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in the Malibu Diner in Manhattan on 23rd Street and 7th <laughs> Avenue. I was sitting eating like a, um, maybe like a hamburger or something. And my friend who actually was uh, one of the first people to work with uh, Eminem, of all people, uh, in the late 90s, texted me and he said, and I was like, what? And he's like, Mac Miller died. And I was like, what? Wow. You know, and, and, and you know, there was a sh- strange bit of, like, sub, sub uh, story to the fact that, like, somebody who was probably 10 years older than me, right, who was involved with another influential white rapper, you know, if you want to just, you know, bring it to that level, uh, had this, like, base level of interest and connection and actual sorrow over the passing of somebody who was like 20 years younger than him so it was like oh wow you know that's that's interesting and then i remember just feeling a bit personally like you know like wow you know that's really you know sad and my initial thought was did he um you know commit an act of self-harm right um because there was a little bit of like a underbelly or under you know current of depression that i did kind of like notice in him over the last couple years of his career because i always read everything about him Mm -hmm. he's just one of those people that because i had that connection that i talk about in the beginning of the book i always read when when people would profile him i would always read about you know read read all those stories um and I was like, yeah, that, that was my thought, you know, and then we kind of like didn't really know what it was. And so at the time, like I was working on uh, like another project and I was just like, ah, you know, maybe this this story within that other project will um, have some value. So I went to Pittsburgh. Um, there was a vigil for him and I drove there. Huh. Um, my wife was uh, pregnant at the time and I left her pregnant ass <laughs> and I drove to Pittsburgh, um, which, you know, these things take you away from your family. You know, the, the, the you know, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's writing, but, and it's reporting, but it's work, you know? And, um, I went and, and, and immediately when I got there, um, I was like, I'd never been to Pittsburgh. So I was a little bit taken aback by the city um and even the drive itself which was about six hours from where i live yeah um i did the the drive i i feel like i remember leaving pretty sure it was on september 11th so there was a little bit of you know um that uh, i remember uh driving past the um the area in pennsylvania where one of the planes crashed wow um, cause that, that, that's on the way to Pittsburgh. Um, and I don't know why I'm spacing on where that was right now, <laughs> which is, says a lot about nine eleven and my relationship to it. Um, <laughs> or my relationship to facts and things that I can remember or not remember. But, uh, I, yeah, just remember getting there and I was just like, this is not what I envisioned Pittsburgh being like. Um, and this neighborhood that he lives in is not what I imagined. Um, y- you know, I'd always heard that he was 
like early on in his career, he, there was a lot of stuff about him being like a rich kid. And I was like, hmm, maybe that's valid, right? But he had done a lot to like walk that back, right? So it, it, uh, uh, there was that element of it too. I was like, oh, maybe he is a rich kid or maybe he's not or maybe he's like somewhere in the middle, you know? And um, neighborhood was really nice, but like the city around it was, you could see that, you know, there was a lot of grit. And the area that, that he grew up in was like, not the suburbs um it was within the city limits but like very um had almost like a suburban setting and i i remember walking from there not the day that the first day i went there but the second day i remember walking like 10 minutes to uh another neighborhood that's like 10 minutes away even just like across this like main avenue and i was like wow this neighborhood's really changing like super quickly um and it got um i don't want to say more interesting because that but it just was it was different it was because everything is interesting i mean his neighborhood was interesting but this other neighborhood was also interesting in in a different way um in terms of like the the people that were in it in the stores and and um the sense that you, uh, of your your personal feeling as you're walking down the block right and you know i think as a writer you're kind of like sensitive to that so um that really was like how it started uh started interviewing people there might have interviewed like five or six people maybe even more than that the, the, the first couple of days i was there i came back i looked at the material i was like well this looks like the start of something and that's that's how i started on it there's so much reporting in the book and the, the type of reporting that I really like. Uh, I love all the history. Like, I love going back. It reminded me a little bit of Nick Toshis's biography of Dean Martin where he, like, kind of went back and traced Martin's family as far back as he could. I felt like he incorporated a lot of history of Pittsburgh and kind of put into context the, not just the music but the culture around the city. But who were some of the people that were most willing to talk when you reached them? Because I know as a reporter myself, I've done stories where people would be willing to talk. I've done them where they'd be more reluctant. Who were the people that were most willing to speak to you? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you in one second, but at first, I have to actually say that that book you just mentioned actually was a huge influence on, really? on, on, on this book. So, He's my favorite writer. So the fact that you, you could actually even pick that up, um, you know. I saw what you were doing there, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, but it's crazy because I've at, at times maybe mentioned Nick, Nick Tosh's and that book to people. Um, and... You know, they kind of like don't know the book, right? Even though that's a classic book. He's a very, very underappreciated writer, to say the least. Yeah, no, for sure. And very, very niche. Like, it's only a certain type, type of person that's going to be into that stuff. Because it's pretty literary. Oh, yeah. You know, and Cr incredibly literary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a little bit of a push and pull, you know, it, with regard to that, you know, to how literary to make it. Um, and I could touch on that, in, you know, but at first I want to answer your question. Um, people were actually pretty open to talking. Um, I really didn't have too many issues with interviewing anybody. Um, there might have been a few celebrities and famous people who declined to be a part of it um, just because of some of the politics, you know, around the book um, that had nothing to do with me. But 
um, you know, very specifically, I could say like Pharrell, right? Um, who, you know, you'd be lucky to even get an answer, you know, from his side about this, right? The fact that they even responded to me and told me we would do it if not but for this, you know, um, like was cool. You know what I'm saying? Um, I was grateful that like I was even respected enough that somebody could decline me like that. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Because most people who are fam- even responded to most pe- people who are famous, they just ignore you. Right. right? It's it's a book. Like who gives a f- you know what I'm saying? You know, many people are writing books on things, right? You see books that are out there. There are books written with nobody talks to anybody, right? Right? Like you have a whole biography of just people off of research, you know, and a few like loose connections to this, that, and the third. You know, this book. There are people interviewed in it here who literally live with this guy. You know what I'm saying? Who are his roommates? Uh, you know, his crew best friends you know um you know at different times of his life um people who spoke to him you know in the days leading up to his you know passing the last person he even produced a record for right he talks in the book at one point about like you know i can speak through my producing for other people right like that's actually how i can express myself so i can do things that i can't say in my 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 rhymes and shit like that because you know there's too much of an eye on me as a as a rapper Mm. but i can talk to somebody else so in this book you have literally the last record he produced is is described in detail right how he worked with this kid bill you know who was one of his close friends from childhood and the the record that they made together and that's like i don't know like two weeks before he died you know what i'm saying so um i mean so yeah it wasn't you know frankly it wasn't that hard you know um you know it was you know those things i think it was a little bit the difficulty was that it it was a, a little bit more of um you know when you come out of some of what we come out of which is what i would like to call like celebrity journalism sure. right there's a little bit of hand holding right you have publicists involved you have um just a lot of vested interests right in what's going on tends to puff the piece off sometimes yes right, right? You, you know you know the record labels involved mm-hmm. or the movie studio or the 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 sports team right and so you as the writer are carrying a lot of the uh added weight of the person that you're reporting on and you know it like you said it you can get puffed up or it can be something that isn't exactly accurate you know um like just because you can't destroy these people you right. know i mean you could there's cooperation involved yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah. You know. um this was more like you know reporting in the wake of like a tragic event that hit a small group of people who were representative of like a large group of people and and then kind of like working my way you know you know with some of those through and around and with some of those people to establish um a degree of trust that they knew that i wasn't gonna this up and that i had you know everyone's best interests at heart most importantly his right right um you know because there is a tendency when a person passes away in a tragic way in fact um 
like I'm looking at this thing with John Belushi right in front of me, which is this Animal House thing. Yeah, Animal House poster here in the WXCI studios. And yeah, and um, you know, it's um, what's his name? Uh, who wrote um, you know, Deep Throat? Um, I'm basing on his name and did the Trump book and all that. Um, Bob Woodward yes. wrote this. Um, I think it's Bob Woodward that I'm thinking of. Uh, he wrote a biography of John Belushi. And, you know, it was like a year or two after he passed away that it got published. And it's, you know, a pretty damning portrait of him that, you know, uh, explores basically uh his life of addiction and so on and so forth and really colored so much of who John Belushi is now you know um so you get tempted to do that um and uh yeah like i kind of because i didn't work at a tabloid and i didn't work at a i didn't like work at the new york times i was an independent journalist who freelanced for all these different places I had a lot of different influences in what I was doing, but the most important influence like was who I am as a person and and just like the way I would like interact with people and the type of story that I would like to tell. You know, I would want to be honest, but I but I you know, this book is actually the most probably the most accurate representation of the work I can do without anybody else involved. You know, cuz there was nobody really involved with this other than me. You know, and then, you know, my editor, um, you know, who was gracious in the, in the fact that she w- she wasn't that heavy handed, you know, right. might have offered a little bit of guidance. But like from that day, I went to Pittsburgh, you know, through last week when the book came out in paperback is, you know, I'm kind of the engine of 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 all this shit, you know, and the publisher obviously has been helpful with, you know, the marketing and stuff like that and getting the book in the stores and, you know, the things that they do. But like, you know, this this thing is like, you know, I always say like, you know, you are the wave, <laughs> you know, like right. you are the wave, like you make it happen. Right. It's the truth. The, you know, so what people if if this book was successful or unsuccessful, it's on me. It's not like on anybody else. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And something you mentioned that I want to backtrack to about uh, kind of working independently and and. Uh, writing for a variety of different publications. Uh, you know, I, I haven't gotten my first book out yet, but I could tell you, Paul, that I feel like it I feel like it helped us find our own voices and our own approaches. You know what I mean? Like I think you put all these things together, our our our, our own experiences on the job, and I think we come out with our own style, if you will, uh maybe, you know? Yeah. Um I think that, like, in this book, you know, you mentioned Scratch Magazine, for example, mm-hmm. right? I remember very specifically, you know, having a conversation with somebody who, when I was looking to advance my career in journalism at the time, I was like 25. They, um, I'm not going to mention who their name is, right? They probably would if they listened to this. They definitely know, but. <laughs> and I get a little bit of, like, quiet joy out of the fact that you know i've kind of surpassed where they are right in some sense but i remember him telling me you know your opportunities are small because you work right now at a niche of a niche right you're at a you're working at a magazine for producers 
of hip hop and hip hop is a niche of music right um and it was like so what you're doing is like so small and you really need to broaden what you're doing right um this is one of your coworkers at king by the way <laughs> and um i have a feeling i know who it is <laughs> yeah and uh i just like you know I think like when you look at this book, you can see the Scratch magazine in it, right? But then you can also see... I see a tremendous amount of reporting and just a a very affectionate uh, way of telling a story. I mean, believe me, this is my type of book. Yeah, I mean, so you... so I. But also, I think those are the things that make writers good at what they do. A writer should have like a, a, a varied degree of interest. One of the reasons why the book does start with like kind of a pretty brief but you know compact interest uh uh um sorry uh history of like the neighborhood pittsburgh but also the neighborhood is because i'm interested in history right my interests are not limited to a person was born here you know when i'm walking on the street i'm like what's up with this street like how did this get here right oh i come to learn well you're very inquisitive and i think that's why we read but i also think that that when i was reading that part that created just so i've never been to pittsburgh so that and even though one of my one of my favorite books is wonder boys by michael shabon fantastic book about pittsburgh uh, he's got a few good books about Pittsburgh, but uh, I've never been there. But when you broke it down as well as you did in that in that similar way to Nick, the way Nictashis might have done it, I dare I say, uh, it really resonated with me, kind of where he was from. And, the, and there was a little bit of stuff that I knew, like I knew who Sam Sneed was and a few of the other rappers from Pittsburgh were mentioned. I didn't know the full context of their world. So it it was I was really impressed by that. I think I think also, you know, too, like there was a concerted effort on my behalf to treat Mac as I would treat, say, a story about Kendrick Lamar. Right. Uh, If we were to write a book about Kendrick Lamar or do any kind of story on Kendrick Lamar, we would probably cite his music as, you know, and his personality as being something that was created as a byproduct of his environment. Right. Mm -hmm. That's actually a little bit of a, a like a trope in reporting on, for lack of a better term, gangster rappers. Oh, they grew up thi- like this, it's, but you know, father wasn't there. You know, saw his right, first right. killing at this age, <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, why wouldn't I do the same technique for somebody who maybe had the opposite? Right, right, and it, you know, so it was like, oh, I think okay. that's where it gets interesting. Yeah, it was like, honest. it was like, okay, like maybe he didn't see his first dead body, you know, at age 11, and oh my gosh, that's like, that's great. I mean, I actually want to hear more stories about people who don't see people die. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, you know, and that was actually like, to me, you know, the reason why I did that, because it it just seemed like it was too easy to say it, things were because of X, Y, and Z. And, um, and I was just trying to present a lot of the information, you know, so that, you know, all these pieces when viewed as one puzzle, you could kind of look at it and, and take a lot of different things from it, you know? Um, I, I see you about to ask a question, but the last thing I'll say on that is like, I, you know, you know, study more art and like that than, than, you know, uh, writing, 
um, like I read mostly about uh, painters and really? you know, and so I'm more interested in in how uh, somebody can you know capture something um, that makes you feel rather than me like telling you what to feel. You know, um, there's like that old adage in in writing you know show don't tell you know which is like a sort of a shorthand thing right. that dri- will drive you crazy when you hear it uh-huh. like, what are they talking about <laughs> right but but in truth right you know when you get through it you have to ask like what does that mean and you show through action you show through you know um dialogue you show through um things that are occurring in in, in scenes right and and less about like something was this way so there's a very concerted effort there's only two parts of the book in in, when you read it i mean notice for a fact there's anything that was like telly 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 was taken out the only parts where there's telling is in the in the prologue and the epilogue (laughs) you know everything else is like scenes and you know and just and just reconstructions you know tell me Paul, um, there's when this book came out, or when you went into the process of the book, and and early in the early in the book, you mentioned you didn't have the cooperation of Mac Miller's family. Was there any reason ever given? Mm, not really. Um, yeah, not really. Um, I I don't know enough about what was going on with that to really give an answer you know um if i was to speculate maybe it was personal um some people just don't like people (laughs) you know what i mean like maybe they just didn't like me i don't know you know um did you ever meet with them no no there was um definitely some conversations had you know between um various parties you know but they were never that constructive um i felt uh when you do a book like this it isn't uncommon for um people to not participate sure. or not cooperate right um i don't even really like the word cooperate cuz it it, in, it implies that you're doing something that somebody has to do with you, right? Oh, my child just doesn't want to cooperate, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't really like that language. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think like I would have loved for for them to participate. Um, I, would the book have been different if they did? Uh, absolutely, um, and I welcomed it all the way until the book was published. Um, you know. The plan from my uh, side was always to, you know, once the book was finished and people knew that I was on the, um, you know, in solid standing with everybody to go back and say, hey, look, the book is like, you know, getting close to finished. It might even be finished. And we really, you know, when I say we, I mean I. But I happen to speak, like, often speaking in, uh, you know... Uh, we in the corporate uh, sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, like, I would like, you know, now to, like, hey, like, you know, I think you can tell that, like, I've been, you know, working on this for a couple of years. You can see that I'm pretty serious about it. I have good intentions or, you know, my intentions are not uh, malicious. 
and but I never really got that chance, you know. And then it was just like, okay, like we're just gonna just gonna go with it the way it is, and and um, people seem to like it, which I'm I'm thankful for. Um, and yeah, I mean they um, supported a, another project, um, which was a different type of book, um, which. I personally supported myself. I went and bought it like the day it came out. You know, um, I support anybody doing anything. I'm I'm into, I'm in the business of of knowledge. <laughs> you no. know, and and like and and people wanting to know things. I'm like I don't, I write a, write books and stuff for people who want to read, not for people who don't want to read or want to ban books and shit like that. Well, well, the lack of participation for Mac Miller's family, I don't I don't really know if it. It hurt the final product because I am a, um, I guess I'm a phantom user of Goodreads. I'm just on it all day. I never really leave like long, lengthy reviews. It's just not my thing. But I do pretty much read Goodreads reviews all day. And even if they're bad, I'll buy the book. Um, one Goodreads review describes the book as high-key amazing. High-key amazing. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, I Goodreads was definitely a, a source of you know uh, some anxiety for me. You know because I know. Wait, I want to go yeah. through this. Another Goodreads reviewer says you can tell from the opening pages of Most Dope that the book was written with such a deep abiding respect for him and all he went through. And I'm um, I'm I'm just wondering. They're clearly, you know, I don't know what you want to say about it or not, but there clearly seems to be a little bit of a sabotage on the Goodreads page. All of all of the negative reviews, just in my opinion, I do sound like some crazy sports radio DJ right now, but but all of the negative reviews do seem to be a little malicious and 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 kind of misleading. Um, what did you make of that? I mean, it was distressing at the time um, because you you know the book was getting review bombed you know months before it came out um and people still leave you know those types of reviews and people are the average person's very influenced by by ratings and reviews they don't really realize like what's going on and i felt that i was kind of getting slandered right and like quote totally unquote, quote unquote defamed right uh, it was doing me some reputational harm um and that was um troubling for me and i was definitely in my head about it for a while um like it, yeah it, it was it created a lot of it created a lot of problems not just the good read stuff but it was a lot of things that were going on um you know behind the scenes uh writing a book in and of itself is just such um an emotional you know minefield and it's it takes so much mental labor to do it and you know with this book but i think probably all nonfiction books i only have one under my belt hopefully the next time you know i'm here or on a radio station that you that you're doing a show at i would like to have more books under my belt but you literally if there is a hundred people interviewed for the book you have a hundred people in your head every time you write a sentence yeah. right and they're all competing they're saying use my quote i said the best thing i got the best story you know like and they're all like you know informing every sentence you, you write right and so then you have your own voice right 
and and then you have your own life right which is um whatever it is like you know uh whatever you're doing you know outside of your work and so i was carrying that with me and was like had a lot of um stress anxiety even you know uh what i would call like a serious like depression you know really from doing it um and as i said i kind of came out of it in um you know in the summer and feel a lot better now uh like a year later um feel amazing you know like (laughs) and you know uh I don't know. I feel like I accomplished something and 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 um have a lot more confidence than I did at the time. The the other thing was like all those like ne- that that negative stuff you can kind of block it out to some degree, but it does, you know, it does people keep telling you you're a piece of shit or whatever, you know, you may start believing it, you know? Um you're like, "Oh, maybe I am a piece of shit." <laughs> you know, like <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you, because you, you kind of jumped all the way to the end there. I'm wondering if you could, just for the audience, and we have a lot of people, uh, hopefully we have some listeners that are members of our uh, WestCon uh, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program listening. Just, Paul, if you can, step by step, wondering if you could walk us through your decision to write the book, and then, you know, in turn, how you approach knocking down the nuts and bolts of the, the project, finding a publisher did you have an agent at that time just give our where you were and in your own career and 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 how you had to go about not who you had to speak to sources etc yeah well i already had uh, a publisher for uh, as i said i was working on a, a different project i already had a book deal um for that project that was its own thing that i spent about a year working on a book proposal for um anybody who's can I take a guess about what it was about? Sure. Was it about kids? No. No. There's a big was, chunk in yeah. the book about kids, right? Yeah. That would make a good book. Um shit, sure maybe. somebody has one, right? <laughs> maybe maybe I'll uh, go back and go home and write a book proposal about that right That'd now. That'd be a great idea. <laughs> um Assistant Matt Caputo. Yeah. <laughs> um No, it wasn't. Um it was a you know, it was sort of loosely connected to this um this book um and it really wasn't that difficult to you know switch gears because what happened was when i was in pittsburgh i'm really big on um like writing in the moment Mm -hmm. um i really feel that the the unfiltered voice is the best voice um also like what we today would call like the 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 gonzo journalism right and stuff that we all love we all love it's all like stream of conscious craziness right (laughs) it's it's not like this this self-edited or even you know edited by somebody else edited um like shit that we associate with you know um journalism now right it's this raw emotional voice um so I had uh, published a couple stories before I went to Pittsburgh, like maybe in the year before I had done a story on uh, this podcaster, uh, Combat Jack, who passed away of uh, cancer. Wow, Combat Jack. And um, I reported on that all the way until he passed away. 
um, and was with him in the hospital, like wow. m- up maybe till like three hours before he died. Who'd you write that for? That was for Vulture, um, and that story uh, was collaborative. Me and him working on it. We didn't have anybody involved with it. It wasn't like I dealt with an editor um, before we started working on it. We just said, "Hey, like, let's just like do this thing and like figure out what." is going to happen as it happens. So I just kind of was reporting on it and didn't even have anybody in line to publish it. I pitched it to two places, the New York times and vulture, the New York times, um, didn't, I I don't know that they weren't interested, but they just, they didn't want it at that time. Um, and then vulture was into it. Um, and then I did a story on J Cole and that too, we didn't have a publisher or anybody that was totally collaborative. Um, I knew Cole personally. Um, I had probably asked him about two years before that if he would be interested in me doing a story on him, and and like, you know, maybe we could do that. And because um, we were hanging out a little bit socially, not like overly so, you know, it wasn't like we we're, you know, going to movies, you know, but <laughs> um, we 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 would like hang you know here and there um he had come to my house once and like we just you know just gone kicking it and so then when he had an album coming out he he asked me like you know would you be down to write something about me and i was like yeah and um we did a lot of that without anybody involved and both of those stories um if you read them, even though the the Jake Hall one did change a lot, and they, both of those stories were 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 written and rewritten like a billion times, the 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 core elements of those stories, as you read them, are almost exactly as I wrote them in the moment. Um, like the Jake Hall story starts, I we we'd done something like one day, I got up, I think the next day, and I just wrote from memory what he did. And that's like half the story, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And everything he said, all his quotes, I didn't, they weren't like off of like a tape recorder. They were just me like remembering what he said, right? And they read amazing because of that, right? Just because I'm not like, it's like, yeah, I, I, I know like he said that, right? And then I would kind of just go back and check to make sure that, <laughs> that I, I wasn't like making shit up, right? Because right? right. I, I was recording it and I was like, oh yeah, he did say that. Like, <laughs> he, he said it exactly like that. Like I totally, I had just gotten really pretty gr- good at, you know, remembering what people were saying. Um, same thing, the Combat Jack story, if you, if you um, look at the opening of that story, which is maybe like three or 400 words. That was actually the four, three or 400 words that the story starts with. is actually what I pitched to, to, to sell the story. Wow. Right. That's actually how I landed the article was that was pretty much that, right. I wrote it like an email. And then I just, when I was getting ready to do the story, I was like, well, this is pretty good. This should just be this, the, the opening of the story. Wow. So I say that to say that when I was in Pittsburgh, literally that September, it was September 12th, I was sitting in this like diner in Pittsburgh and I wrote a bunch of shit, right? And I, and like I wrote based on what like whatever interviews I had done the day before. So and so said this, so and so said that. And, and based on that, I was like, there is a book here. Right. I looked at that writing, which was in a um, a black and white notebook. Right. 
and um, I, I, I had my, my assistant, I gave him the exercise too. I said, we're going to sit here and you write whatever the hell you want about what we're doing here. And he wrote something really interesting and I wrote it, you know, something interesting. And then we sat there and we like compared notes, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, what do you think of this? And he was like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, and, I, and he was like, what do you think of this? And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting, <laughs> you know. And um, so that was like what 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 um how it really like the real 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 like putting you in the room that's the genesis of it right if i had sat there and not been able to do that i probably wouldn't have done the book right um it was only when i came back and looked what i had and what i had like weeks later because i kind of do that stuff and <coughs> don't look at it um it was only when i looked back at it that i was like oh this is like really interesting you know i really like um the scenery I love, and I like what's happening here. Um, it was kind of like, you know, the part that you were talking about with the history of Pittsburgh. It was similar to that with just a little bit less going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a little bit. Le- there were fewer facts, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, but it was that was the element of it. It was like I'm going to put you here in the neighborhood. Um, then m- almost like a year passed, right? I I had a contract for a book already. You know, so it wasn't that difficult. I just went to the publisher and I was like, I don't want to do that book anymore. Um, but what do you think about me doing this? And um, I gave them not an entirely new book proposal, but um, a, 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 like a synopsis of what I thought the book could be about. Um, and this book is is much different than even that was because um, mm. I, I learned so much that I didn't know. At that time, I wasn't, it was just an idea of what I thought it could be. Um, and all, by then, I actually, before I even did that, though, it wasn't like I went to the publisher and I was like, hey, I'm going to do this book all willy-nilly, f- right? <laughs> I actually had gone to um, one of, uh, Mac's closest friends who I knew and I asked him like what he thought of that idea of me doing the book and he was like yeah I'm into that you know it's it's still early you know and, and it's pretty raw but uh, I'm in favor of that you know um, and I think he would be as well like if anybody I remember his exact words were if anybody was to do this you know, it would be you. And I was like, okay, hung up. And then I had another conversation with one other close friend and he said something similar. Right. So then based on that, I was like, okay, like I can kind of, I felt like a little more comfortable with, with the idea of doing it. I still wasn't like a hundred percent sure, you know, but, um, and then that's kind of how it started. Yeah. A question I wanted to clarify for maybe the audience is, how many times had you written about Mac Miller p- prior to deciding to do the book? I'd written about him maybe um, maybe two or three times. Did you hold on to the tapes? Were the tapes anything worth worth? Well, anything? I I'd never I'd actually never interviewed him personally. Uh-huh. Um, I definitely met him, you know, um, and even that the meeting part of of it i didn't really put in the book um i had some personal interaction with him that it wasn't like we were friends but we had some personal action to the degree personal interaction to the degree that 
Um, I mean, frankly, he wasn't in the best of shape when 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 we interacted once. Wow. And where like, was it? It was. Uh, he was having a like a release party um, for like it was Blue Slide Park, and um, yeah, he was pretty drunk mm. and like pretty out of it. Um, so I think like I, th- I mean he was he was having fun you know what I'm right. saying but he was definitely like you know he was he was uh, he, was he was as rappers do right yeah, when yeah. an album's coming out you know but it's funny because when people try to like push back on this narrative of like oh like he wasn't like I'm like yeah all right you know there was so many stories that didn't make it into this book like there were other writers I knew who would give me stories about. You know, doing cocaine with him, and yeah. different things. Oh, we were we were here. We were doing. We did X, Y, and Z. Now these weren't on the record things, right? This was just um, interactions. In, 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 interactions. Um, there was, there were some stories from this that that didn't go into the book necessarily. That um, I think were important, but were somewhat difficult to verify because they were a little bit like. I don't want to say they were hearsay exactly. They felt like they were truthful, but they were hard to pin down because it was like a, a secondary person coming to me to say, so-and-so told me they were doing cocaine with right, him on this right. day. You know, and I was like, well, that doesn't feel like something I can really, with, you know, extreme confidence, report on. It makes for a good book, right? But it just felt a little irresponsible personally. Right. You know, and I didn't want to... um I just was I didn't want to be that guy. I'm not like I'm not that person, you know. Um you know, it might be give me bad standing with, you know, publishers or whatever, but I'm like <laughs> I mean, I don't think it does, you know, but they want something very salacious, right? And um I just I I can't like do it just for the sake of doing it, right? It has to hold up to scrutiny. Um so to, but to answer your question about like my interactions with him, um, yeah, they were kind of like that, you know. Yeah, no. I, and I had I'd reviewed one of his albums. Um, I'd written something about even you know going to uh, the big Highline Ballroom show that's that's talked about in here, um, and you know some personal feelings that I had just about my own life, you know, being at that specific show. Um, and we interacted a little bit like online um and i think he was aware that he had people in his circle that were close to me mm-hmm. um and then additionally um i think that uh i'm sort of grateful that i didn't report on him right i mean i would have loved to have met him and done that story but uh that would have colored the work a lot, which was also something I learned, you know, in doing this book, which was that, you know, the less of your shit you're bringing into it, like the better it can be. Right. Because now you don't have this like added weight of a friendship or any type of personal interaction. Right. You can just let the information speak for itself. And um, it made me a much stronger storyteller, and and grew my confidence and my ability to pretty much go in and and do any story on literally anything. No, I, I can I can relate to that feeling. And what I wanted to ask you is a great segue into a question I had: is um, did you feel that 
all the years you spent doing magazine pieces prepared you for writing a book, or is it just two different beasts? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, I mean, I think that what I learned from magazine writing was a formula for doing magazine writing. Um, I knew that there were certain types of things that I, I had to kind of get into a piece to make a piece work or make it make sense. Um, and I think some of that was constructive. And then I think also I had to like unlearn a lot. Um, I'm grateful, like, as I'm sure you are now at this stage of your life to have had those experiences. But, um, you have to like kind of know the rules in order to break them. Yeah. Right. And, um, like it, honestly, if I was to do another book, I wouldn't probably wouldn't do it like this. Right. Like this was an exercise in doing something that, you know, I was trying to do X, Y, and Z, hopefully accomplish that. But I think, you know, um, there is a certain, you know, element that I, I you know, I want to do my next thing with that's a little different and I'll probably take a different approach, right? Um, this book, you know, at the end of the day, right, you know, even though I am the author of it, right, when you're telling somebody else's story, you know, you don't put your, you know, so much of you into it, even in the style that it's written, you know. Um, this doesn't have necessarily, like, my, st my, like, style of, like, writing, all over it you know i actually write personally a lot different than this but i could imagine that being the case and to be honest i actually thought that a few times while i was reading yeah like my you know personal you know style of writing is is a little different than that than this but this you know it was tooled a certain way you know because at the end of the day it's for a reader it's right? a specific project yeah yeah, yeah. it's know. very specific and, you know, um, like you don't there's not a lot of like necessarily my voice in it. Right. You don't hear me injecting like how I feel about anything, really. Um, I try to use, you know, the reporting to tell the story. If it didn't wasn't in the reporting, I, it wasn't like I wouldn't do it. Um, there is an earlier draft of the book <laughs> that is a much more unrestrained, you know, draft that is like more in the like thing that, that I would like personally do, you know, but that is the thing that's in my, it's in my, you know, it's in my documents folder on my computer because, you know, it's like, um, a musician who, you know, is just improving, right? It's like, do you really want to see me noodling for, you know, seven pages or do you just want to get to the point? You know what I'm saying? We, we mentioned, uh, Nick Tosh's great book, Dino, the biography of Dean Martin. It's uh, uh, living high in the dirty business of dreams, I think, is the tagline of, of, of that book. Uh, Paul, what were the other books that inspired you when writing this one? Um, what was a book that inspired me while I was writing this one? Um... Yeah, not that much nonfiction, really. Um, I can believe that. Yeah, um, I'm sure a lot of kids have read the book like Siddhartha, right? Sure. That's a famous book, Herman Hesse. 
that's um that was a pretty big influence even though <laughs> it's pretty difficult to see it right because that book is about a you know a boy going on a journey of discovery right you know and um it's not that far apart in trying to capture this kid's life yeah i mean you know over the last like decade because I didn't really go to school for writing or anything like that. I'm pretty much self-taught with mm-hmm. most things. Um, I had to like personally educate myself on how to tell a story and storytelling as a concept. Um, and like I said, unlearn a lot of things that I learned in like journalism school, which I mean, I do have formal training for, you know, um, you know, I'm a CUNY graduate and all that. Um, but I had to like kind of become a better storyteller um and I did that by reading a lot of journalism and seeing where it fell short and like where I thought it could be better um and reading a lot of um you know a lot a lot of novels and and stuff like that and and but like I hate 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 the the people citing the hero's journey and all that bullshit um, like, which is such like, uh, you know, it's just a placeholder for something people can't explain. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there's so many elements of the hero's journey that, um, when you're doing a nonfiction book that don't really connect. Right. Right. And you can't just make them up. Right. It's not like you can just be like, this is his moment of crisis. And they, you, you like, if it didn't happen, you can't just say it happened. Right. So you, it, you can't use it as a, as a like a perfect stand-in um but there is a little bit of a journey um and and that's kind of you know what i was trying to do um so you kind of start you know at the beginning you know this is a, a boy coming from a place and then at the end the last sentence is you know he's finding his way home yeah right and there's a lot of symbolism right in in home you know and so that was really that took a lot (laughs) you know to actually figure out um this book took me right to that era of you know i don't know if it was your intention or not but it took me right to that era of like 2002 between 2002 and 2012 and 14 kind of that era of hip-hop where there was so much exploration so like hip-hop labels were like startups now it was like everybody had one everybody was trying to do something with music and there was talent coming out of it uh in in a lot of different directions it wasn't as centralized as it had been in the past or restricted to different coasts or, or neighborhoods or whatever have you you made another interesting uh i i assume you made the decision but there's another interesting part of the book where you refer to him as Malcolm throughout the whole book was that a decision on your part were you ever thinking about referring to him as anything else um well most of the early interviews for the book were with his close friends and um they almost universally called him you know Malcolm wow. um it really wasn't maybe a little bit of Mac here and there but it was like they felt like they were talking about somebody that was a close friend right. as he was. So I don't know. I I kind of started in it, you know, 
uh, I was imbibing their interviews, right? And in they what they were saying and that that reporting was sort of living through me, and I was kind of the vessel for it, you know. So if they were talking about them like that, I kind of decided like that's how I'll talk about them because it was very personal, yeah, you know, and so. That was kind. Of, that it was, was a little less of less of a choice and a little more a product of your reporting, kind of. Yeah, I I I think like, you know, when you're doing one of these things, you really can't go in with with too much of an agenda. You have to just the story kind of will de- dictate how it's to be told, um, and like, I always you know have marvel that filmmakers who make different types of films right you're like how the hell did this person do who did this do this right, right? and it's just because at that moment the, that thing was speaking through them and that's how it came out and um and the same thing with musicians right i mean i always loved how certain producers or certain artists could you know make one kind of record and go do something else um so a lot of the the way this book was was like exists is is really a result of of just of just letting it kind of write itself um but it, it, you know to to go back to the question you answered earlier asked earlier about the um you know the influences i did want to make write something that was v- like a little bit simple in construction right and not too complex right um not because i thought the the audience was simple i just think there's great power in in simplicity me too um you know and uh so like in 2014 he had released uh you know a mixtape that is is like many people think is the best project he released faces right and on faces right there's um i i think there's if i'm not mistaken like these bukowski quotes and and stuff like that and they're kind of sprinkled in and that was like a big influence in that project and um i came to bukowski super late right i didn't start reading any of that stuff until i was like in my 30s wow. i missed that whole era of you know of, uh, reading it in your 20s i guess yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> whatever people i i like i missed that that whole you know what you call like degenerate lit or right, whatever right, right. you know like i totally That's all um, i know yeah yeah <laughs> i never you know got into that stuff even like hunter s thompson i never read that stuff um it, you know i didn't read fear and loathing in las vegas till i was like 34 or something wow. like that you know um and so I say all that to say that there was a little bit of the Bukowski thing, you know, that you could kind of like, not necessarily in the style, but but there was a simplicity that he wrote with sure. that I was like, I, a couple of times in the book, I was like, what would Bukowski do here? Little little less Nick Tosh's, a little right, more Bukowski, right. <laughs> right? That's where yeah. you have to toe the line. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right, like right. a little, you know. Nick can be tough to read sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah because like while I loved that book, Dino, um, that book Dino is is um it's a little bit of um you know it's hard to get into right it moves slow yeah it's uh um, everything he has moves at a snail's yeah, pace yeah yeah it moves slow and um I think there was a a few people who read the book who said the book started slow and I was like okay cool that's great you know what I mean like because it was supposed to be like it was sort of intentional right yeah. you know um. 
and and definitely a big influence on it was music, right? Um, a lot of uh, classical music and just the way you know uh, uh, in, an opera has different movements, right? In different parts, it's fast, and then it slows down. It's not one speed, you know, the whole you know time. Right. You know what I'm saying? And something might o- open with like you know you know uh, a, a, like a slow opening, and you got a two minutes, three minutes of that, and then it then. You know, not everything is like the William Tell overture. You right, know what I'm saying? Right, like, because right. if you were just hearing that <laughs> for you know, like you know, a half hour, you'd be like, "Dude, I can't keep up with this." You know, um, and so it was like a little bit of an emotional, like you know, uh, um, composition to it. You know, uh, and that's. It, but I, even though I'm mentioning these people, I can't say like. The the biggest influence was the story, yeah. and then the second biggest influence was just me, and then the third biggest influence was you know all the shit that you know I probably have ingested over my lifetime um, that inspired me to want to write. You know, um, Siddhartha too is like even though I mentioned that one, it's a very simple book, sure. right? That's why people read it when they're like twelve, you know. Um, so, but like. Uh, somebody messaged me today about the book and 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 you know from Australia they said uh, while I was reading this I really like realized a bunch of things about my own life and I was like yes that's that's kind of what oh, we're absolutely. going that's, that's kind of yeah. what we were going for you know I think that uh, the writer the writer realizes a bunch about their own life when they start writing I mean um even the little project that I'm working on it just seems like uh I've been following the story so long that it that, that there's so many changes that I went through in that in that time. But, but what I want to ask you as we get to the close of the hour or so here, what was the hardest part of this book to write? Because there there definitely are some sad parts. Um, the hardest part to write was the um, the epilogue. Um, the part where I actually write about about everything that you know actually happened, like when I talk, you know, the book ends and it ends with him going home, and there's a lot of like symbolism being used with some of his songs and things that are going on in his life. So that ending changed a few times. That ending changed a few times. The first version of that, I remember writing it in a marathon session of being up for like literally 18 19 hours straight trying to nail this thing i wrote the last line of the book and i just was I like actually was crying wow. right and i don't know if i was crying because i finished the book or if i was crying because i was so invested in the you know in the story probably a combination but i remember it like you know very vividly and then i i, I you know emailed it off to my editor and I went upstairs and I like went to sleep for like two days or something like uh, that, you know, maybe not, uh, you know, cause I have a kid and I'm sure she woke me up like an hour later. <laughs> but, um, then I, writing the epilogue when, you know, I, there was a epilogue that was much simpler and it was just like on this day, you know, he died and blah, blah, blah. And it would have like no details. And it was extremely powerful the way it was written. Like, it was emotionally strong. The emotional strength of it, 
was like you could not f with it like everybody who read this from my agent to the editors to the publishing company they were all like this ending is insane they're like you know everybody was like in tears over this thing right <laughs> and i was like wow you know i thought it was like the strongest thing i'd, I'd ever written um but I realized there were some things, even though it was strong, that were like, they were kind of like missing, right. you know? And so I started adding things to it, you know, that were kind of like build it up a little bit. And it, it kind of changed a little bit. And I think some of the emotional currency of it changed. And that was really difficult, extremely difficult to try to like figure out, you know, how to retain what I originally felt and what everybody felt about this thing. But inject this thing that actually had to go in there for it to be truthful right i'm saying it was truthful before but it was it was missing some things right and i was like you also need to know this right so it was hard and then the epilogue like was very hard to write because it that was a very um i don't want to use the word i'm not sure if ugly is the right word but death is not you know is not a fun thing to write about and the the fine details of a you know of the scene of where somebody overdose right is you're getting pretty close to something that is like a sacred ground right and you're you're like you don't really know how deep into that you want to go and i thought that that epilogue took a lot of the emotional power away from the ending but in again because it was a non-fiction book it, it, i had to do it right it was like i don't you can't write a biography of somebody and don't tell people what the f happened right it would be like you would just close the book and be like okay like do i have to google this now yeah, like yeah. like what what exactly happened like i gotta look this up right and so there was a little bit of a conflict between you know the you know truth of the situation which was very sad and the emotional power that the writing had in my opinion and, and you know i'm pretty i feel like pretty modest and have a fairly high bar like i, I kind of hate everything i write right you know i don't even think i've written a good sentence yet you Me know too. um <laughs> so you could probably tell in our conversation about this. I'm I'm even being critical of the book. I, oh, I could have written it better. I could have yeah. done this right. Well, There's all these different things, right? Whereas another person could see it and they'd be like, "This is amazing," you know. But me, I'll I'll call I'll kind of always, you know, remember the thing that I wrote that made me cry, right? And that's the thing that you know. I don't necessarily know if I executed it perfectly. I just did the best I could to retain some of that with what the job was, which was to write a nonfiction biography, you know, and look, that's the, you know, the challenge of, of being a, a biographer and, you know, you have to be truthful and tell the story for real and not like, you know, you can use a lot of metaphor and a lot of literary, literary devices and, and you can bring a lot of emotional currency to it, but you know, you still have to, put the facts in there you know what was your approach i mean did you have people you were sending chapters to did you get feedback from your wife how do you do it uh my wife was like a primary reader um 
she would kind of read them at this almost like at the same time as the editor, maybe a little bit before. Um, my agent at the time, you know, was helpful. He read some stuff. Um, also, my assistant, uh, Michael, he he read a lot. Um, I would kind of give him stuff, but I didn't really have too many uh, like you know, first readers. Mm -hmm. I, I, in some sense, wish I did. And, um, I, I'm like a little envious of people who have that. I, I, I noticed that with a lot of writers, they'll say, Oh, you know, I'm grateful for my first readers, you know, who gave us an early read and gave me critical feedback. I'm like, actually I had no critical feedback. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, like, um, it really wasn't anybody. Right. Um, like I said, my wife, you know, she was helpful in some sense. Um, but more from a, this like standpoint of like, is this hitting? Like, is this confusing? And does this seem like it's going in the right direction? And, um, it's tough, you know, writing is a very, um, it takes a lot out of you, but then it also takes a lot out of the reader, right? Yeah. They have to sit there and commit that time to it. Um, so, yeah, my editor at Abrams, who was who no longer at Abrams, um, unfortunately, uh, she was, you know, good with, um, so, you know, feedback, um, wasn't super heavy handed, but she made some you know some notable uh observations like about um certain things that were lacking um and then she might have encouraged me to do a few things that <clears throat> uh I didn't do you know um I think she would have preferred that like we had more stuff about like his ex-girlfriend in the book and I just felt like you know this is a living person you know, who's alive right now. And like, we got to like, be careful how much, you know, information we're putting out there about this person who's a private individual. You yeah. know, um, she, she had declined to be interviewed. Um, not, uh, if I remember her correctly, it wasn't like she declined, like go f- yourself. It was more like, I would love to do this, but you know, the family is not involved, so, you know, I'm not going to do it. She stepped off. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, had she done that, um, when there was a couple other, you know, uh, romantic people, you know, who, like from his life. That, Relationships. That, yeah, had a similar point of view on it. Um, and I understood that, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was a little bit of a, like a, a push and pull of, like, trying to figure out how much of that to disclose. Also because some of that information was, like, public. It was, like, online, right? You can, nowadays, you can come through people's social media. Oh, and, sure. And, 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 and literally, like, do, it all do, yeah, do a deep dive in, in three minutes, right? And you're like, well, technically this is public, but, you know, but, like, ethically it's sort of not, right? Um, it's like... Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's a little bit of a like a, a fine line between, you know, how much of that you're going to, you know, really put out there. Yeah. Like, you mean of stuff you found on Instagram or stuff like that? Or? Well, um, like, real specifically, you know, his, his ex-girlfriend had a blog, right? And she re- she detailed the relationship in a lot of, you know, blog posts um, through pictures and um, a variety of personal musings you know as basically first person essays Hmm. um as people 
tend to do when they have a Tumblr or a blog or whatever, right? Maybe she wouldn't name him, but you knew that she was talking about him. You could write a whole book based on that, right? Yeah. It, you know, um, and in a different time with different people, you know, there are tons of biographies written about, you know, celebrities who, through their love letters and stuff like right. that, the literary world is spilled with these things. Sure. Um, but I didn't, I felt that, you know, um, the, these things were shared in, in fun and in the self-confessional way that with, without, um, filter that people do online. If you knew that it was going to be repurposed, you know, in a book, um, and, you know, under the guise of the first amendment, right. And, you know, you basically making private information public, you maybe would think twice about it. Right. So I was just like, "Mm, I think it's in our best judgment to just leave that alone. Right. We can write around those blog posts. We could like talk about them. Right. And acknowledge that they existed and, and point to the fact of what they might be talking about. But let's like, let's not quote them in mass and let's not really like put it, so far out there, you know, of uh, uh, you know, because you have a lot of liberty, you know, through um, fair use and things like that to use that stuff, right? I mean, if a per- person's on Instagram, you can take an Instagram caption and just put it in a book, like it's basically usable. Um, now, some people will, you know, clamp down on that because they don't want to, you know, have issues over it. When I say people, I mean publishing companies, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but yeah, you do have a lot of liberty. Um, I kind of just wanted to be a little on the, like, like in good faith, just be like, I'll just leave that stuff alone. Um, I didn't want to read more into it than, you know, there was. Um, and like I said, it was stuff that was just put online and, but you see that in the news every day, a person posts something on like literally the New York Post, my favorite publication, <laughs> um, the New York Post is like such and such seems to confirm that, you know, Taylor Swift seems to confirm that she hates Jennifer Lopez. Oh and, and, you know, with some Instagram post made 30 seconds after such. And you're like, <laughs> how the hell could you deduce that? You know, and even if it does scan as true, <laughs> you know, it, it you know, it's just it's kind of like, really? <laughs> Tell us. Before we let you go, Paul, tell us what you're working on now. What might be next? Um, just writing, a lot of writing, a lot of writing, a lot of writing. Um, a couple new book projects um, and a few documentary projects and nothing that, like, is set in stone that I, like, am, you know, going to, like, be like, yeah, this is coming out this date, but I'll hopefully within the next two years... Uh, you know, I have a, another book. Books take a long time to write, and um, and documentaries take a long time to make. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm hustling. You know, just looking for the next thing. Uh, are you Are you still doing any kind of like magazine or online writing? Not as much online stuff anymore. Um, I mean, I'm open to doing it. Yeah. Um, but like there, all of us. <laughs> yeah, there was actually a story that I was going to do towards the end of last year that didn't happen for um, one reason or another. But uh, I had agreed to do it. It was for a like a mag, you know, magazine. 
Um, yeah, like, I mean, as you get older and your the the scope of your projects change, the ideas that you get, you know, um, they they don't always fit that neatly into like I'm going to pitch this to you know this right right. Um, but that's harder and harder. Yeah, like almost anything that comes in my direction, I could make into a magazine article. Right. Um, I'm 100% confident that I can figure that out in two seconds. Like, yeah. oh, this is the oh this is this person and doing they're doing that. Next like, thing you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I could totally pitch this anywhere, but you know the amount of work that goes into one of those stories, it's like it's a pretty significant you know lift, and um, I just am like. I don't know. It's, if, is that the thing to focus on? Um, I'm not really that sure. I, I have a little bit of a bucket list, as all people in creative life do. And the, the next thing on my list is is making a movie. So that is where my head is. Awesome. Um, yeah, like I definitely am going to write another book or three. <laughs> um, but, you know, the two things that are on my list – are you know i want to publish a novel and i and i want to make a movie um and the movie thing is really um feeling really good right now it's where my head has been um and yeah i'm just like a little kid you know i just like have childhood dreams and that those are the things i'm after you know so book was one of them did that and you know a lot of the stuff that i tried to do in music i did um, you know, already in a previous iteration of my life, yeah. you know, those things I'm still doing and I'm going to do them within the confines of like this next thing I'm doing, you know? So, you know, that might be like a soundtrack or whatever, but that's, that's, that's where my head is. Paul Cantor, author of most dope, the extraordinary life of Mac Miller now out in paperback by Abrams books. Thank you for joining us on WXEI 91.7 in Danbury. Hey guys, I'm Constance Wu from the movie Crazy Rich Asians, and I love libraries because they help readers from all walks of life access smart, funny, engaging books featuring diverse characters. Promote inclusion in literature by supporting your library. Hello, I'm Emilio Estevez. I wrote and directed my new film, The Public, because I'm passionate about the role of libraries in our communities and in our democracy. Public libraries are free to all, but they need your support. So visit, volunteer, advocate, and make some noise. Go to ilovelibraries.org to learn more. We're back on WXEI 91.7 Danbury, Westcon Radio. This is The Public Reading Club. And now we've come to the portion of the show where I'm going to recommend a book that I really like. And I was going to do a different book when I conceived this segment of the show. But last week I did end up um, recommending the book I ultimately chose uh, to a friend of mine, uh, the fiancé of Danbury Hattrick's uh, head coach, uh, Lee um, told me she was reading some book about a uh, novel that took place in a hockey town in Sweden or something like that. And I told her that I had just the book uh, for her. She's the wife of the, she's the fiance of the uh, 
coach of the pro hockey team in town, so I had a great book in mind for her. It's called Zamboni Rodeo, Chasing Dreams from Austin to Albuquerque by Jason Cohen. And it's a, essentially uh, a book about uh, kind of a lost time in minor league pro hockey in Austin, Texas, and a great writer in Jason Cohen who spent many years writing with Rolling Stone and Texas Monthly and uh, I believe he lives back in Philadelphia now. But the book is about the Austin Ice Bats and the low-level minor leaguers that were playing hockey all across uh, the Deep South and the Far West in uh, the now-defunct Western Professional Hockey League. And it gave a really raw glimpse into the life of these low-level athletes and their uh, kind of ascension from more or less cast-offs of other higher leagues and uh, guys who would normally be working uh, different jobs and back in those days definitely uh, guys coming down from Canada who may have been working in oil and coal uh, type mining situations uh, would come down to the you know places where you'd never associate with hockey Waco, Texas, Albuquerque, New Mexico Austin, Texas Tupelo, Mississippi um, you know uh, so on and so forth uh, Odessa, Texas Laredo, Texas so on and so forth into the old uh, kind of minor league circuits that dip through those towns and Zamboni Rodeo is just a fantastic book about, you know, guys chasing their dreams. And to, to read the inside cover, from the first spark of the pregame blowtorch to the last swig of beer, Zamboni Rodeo offers an inside look at hockey's quirks, personalities, and day-to-day -day routines. Following the fortunes of the Austin Ice Bats as they wander from Lake Charles to El Paso, Waco to Monroe, and Belton to Albuquerque, writer Jason Cohen joins the team in the locker room between periods, suffers through every bus ride, and even spends a night in the penalty box as he comes to know life in hockey, Texas style. The story of the Ice Bats is much the same as for any minor pro hockey team in any city. It is a tale of living on fast food and Powerade, holding practices in deserted shopping malls, and dealing with slushy ice in subtropical arenas. Though Texas might be the only place where games are called on account of fog inside the arena, and playoff scheduling is determined by when the rodeo leaves town. But the world Zamboni Rodeo uncovers is also a world where people still play for the love of the game and fans can get themselves a conversation as well as an autograph, no charge. It is a world where the pro hockey dreams of literally hundreds of young Canadian American men are found and where they are lost. Lively, irreverent, hilarious, and poignant. Zamboni Rodeo will appeal to hockey fans and non-fans alike. It really does. If you're interested in uh, kind of the low end of pro sports and the life of the athletes that are just over that line of professionalism, uh, Zamboni Rodeo, Chasing Hockey Dreams from Austin to Albuquerque by Jason Cohen, it, it is the book. Uh, it's a great inspiration to me over the years, and I think anybody who lives in Danbury would love this book. 
it is available uh, on Amazon. You can get used copies on eBay. But Jason Cohen is a fantastic writer who I hope will one day come on the show and discuss this book uh, with us on uh, WXCI 91.7 here in Danbury. And subsequently, uh, we'll be posting these shows as podcasts uh, wherever you get your, uh, you know, your audible streaming stuff. So uh, thanks so much for hanging with us on the first episode of the Public Reading Club here on WXCI. We will be back again soon. Just keep uh, tuned into our Facebook and our Instagram account. But our intentions is to do this show every other Sunday. And I believe it'll be the probably the first and third Sunday uh, of every month. So we'll probably be back again around February 19th. But just stay tuned to Instagram and Facebook. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Matt Caputo, and this is the Public Reading Club on WXCI 91.7, signing off. The Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Frenette and Matt Caputo.